Just a reminder, Josh and Nina are away in, in there. They're actually in sunny Wales, so there'll be no rain there, as it never rains in Wales. Um, they're in beautiful Wales, but they are there with uh, Lancaster City Church, which is one of the churches that sent us out, actually. And Scott and Katie, part of the leadership there, came and served us so well uh, two years ago uh, for our weekend away. So we're a family of churches with links and with connections um, across the, the world. Um, only the week before, Josh was in Mexico. So we're looking forward to, um, in a couple of weeks' time, Josh giving some feedback on how that went. Um, Josh managed to get a surprise birthday party in there. It wasn't even his birthday, so there's some good stories to be told. Um, Great. So we're going to begin a, a new sermon series. We've just finished. We've been looking through the letter to uh, the church in Corinth, the first letter of two that we have. And uh, we, we just finished that last week. Albin kind of bringing it home with the theme of the resurrection. So important uh, for us to, to, to have in our core the importance and the message of the resurrection. And uh, this week, we're going to begin a new sermon series looking at the I am statements in John's gospel. We've actually looked at John's gospel before in 2015. I checked it up, checked it out when we were there. I think, is it possible to, it was 2015? I think it was 2018. 2018 is when it was, when we did that. Um, and it was uh, fantastic to look through chapter by chapter John's gospel. It happens to be my favorite gospel. Um, and until perhaps we preach through the next one. Um, but it was fantastic to look at the, the threads and the way that John uh, kind of puts stories next to stories that in themselves tell something of the bigger picture. But what we're wanting to do as we look at these seven I am statements in John's gospel, they're quite famous, they're things you might have heard of. Uh, today we're going to look at the first one, I am the bread of life, but there's I'm the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the, the way, the truth, and the life. And these are, are seven things that, that Jesus claims about himself, and he uses this phrase, I am, and then a, a, a descriptive, a metaphorical descriptor. And this is a, a device that John uses of doing seven of something. He does it quite a lot. There's seven signs. There's actually seven other standalone I am statements as well that Jesus makes that, that don't come with the metaphor. Um, but they're also fantastic. And you can do this. You can look at the sevens in John's gospel. Uh, and they're really, uh, they're, they're really helpful ways of framing the, the gospel. But what, what John's saying there is uh, it's quite a common um, motif in scripture is, is using the, the number seven to mean kind of a completeness, a wholeness. We uh, see the first instance of that in the Genesis story of, of God kind of creating the world in seven days. The, it, it, it kind of mirrors the seven-day week, or rather is the, is the blueprint for the seven-day week. And it's a picture of wholeness, of it being finished, of it being done, of God saying, I've made this and now I'm resting. It's over. It's done. I've done my good work. And so seven becomes a number in the Bible. You see it lots of times that means this. It means a complete something of it. So we have the sevenfold spirit of, of God uh, in the Old Testament. There's loads of them. But in John's gospel, uh, John says that Jesus makes these seven I am statements. And uh, as we look through John's gospel, and as we look through these seven statements, uh, I want to kind of 
make a plea for us. What we're, we're hoping, what we're seeing, what we're looking for is to ask the question, who is Jesus? That's why we're looking here. Uh, and the question of, of who Jesus is, I, I would argue, is the most important question we can ask. Um, because all of the other questions that we have can be framed in the light of who Jesus says he is. Because if who Jesus says he is is true, then it makes a huge uh, change to how we might frame other questions, how we might answer other questions. So some of the big questions that we might ask about sexuality or suffering, all of a sudden when we think, who is Jesus and who does he claim to be? And if that's true, then what, what he says is worth listening to and what he says has some impact, it has relevance, it has meaning beyond the cultural moment of Jesus' day, but right into our cultural moment too, then actually looking at what Jesus says about these issues and how Jesus interacts with uh, sexuality in his culture, studying that all of a sudden becomes uh, so important reframing the questions and really underpinning or giving a foundation to how we might think about these important topics. So I would argue that if you're here today and you're kind of looking at Christianity from the outside, thinking, I'm not sure about this, I'm, I'm interested in, but, but I've got these big questions, I've got these big things, these, these things that I want to answer about um, these cultural questions of the day, or, or my own experiences and my own pain and my own difficulties, we as a church want to answer those questions. Well, I say answer as though there's answers to them. But, this, you know, there is, but sometimes we want to grapple with. Sometimes answering is actually really about wrestling with and thinking about and having conversation. And we want to be there, but first, who is Jesus? It's where we have to start. Because it's where we're going to go. We're going to say, well, because Jesus says. Because when Jesus came and lived on this earth, he met with those that suffered. And he brought in healing and he brought in restoration. But that didn't end there. He didn't stop there. He went and died and suffered in our place. That matters. It's huge. It's big. And it frames how we then think about suffering today and in our lives personally. So that's what we're thinking over this series, who is Jesus? And Jesus claims to be, seven times in John's gospel, I am something. And a, a really important thing at the very beginning is to think about the I am, because it's not, it's just not a random choice of words. It can be obvious, it's how we would use English. I'm Aled, I am Aled. That's who I am, that's my name. And of course, that's the sense in which Jesus is using it. I am the bread of life, okay. That's what Jesus is saying. But it has a much bigger meaning. It was a much uh, more culturally and religious kind of uh, backstory to it, as it were. Because the word, the phrase I am, is the, is the exact phrase that God uses when, when in the Old Testament, in the story of the Exodus, Moses, I think I've got a, a photo, actually, of Moses in the burning bush. There he is. Um, and, and Moses is, you might remember the story, uh, he's uh, living, he's been living in kind of the Pharaoh's uh, palace, he's kind of an upper class guy, um, but he's, he's, he's an Israelite, he's Jewish, and uh, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people are, are actually slaves, and they are working to build kind of the temples and the, the great palaces of the Pharaohs, and Moses um, 
flees out into the desert and meets with God in a burning bush. And the, God, the voice of God in the bush says, listen, you're going to go and you're going to free my people. You're going to go bring a message to Pharaoh and a message to my people, the Israelites. And Moses says, okay, but they're not going to believe me. Like, who am I going to say sent me? The burning bush God? Like, what's your name, essentially? And God says, I am that I am. That's my name. I am that I am. And we take that phrase, um, it's A-E-V-A-E, we take that and we condense it and we turn it into something. I say we, I, I had nothing to do with it. Ancient Hebrew scholars did this and they condensed it into what's called the Tetragrammaton, four letters, which we can now turn into either the word Yahweh or the word Jehovah. They mean the same thing, they, they come from these four letters. So if you've ever wondered why some people say Yahweh, why some people say Jehovah, it's just about pronunciation of Hebrew vowels. It's very, very complicated. Don't get me started, it's a deep rabbit hole and I've been down it and I'm somehow back to tell the tale. Um, but this is important. In your Old Testament Bibles, if you open up the Old Testament, occasionally you'll come across the word the Lord in all capitals and it stands out because it's different from all the rest of the words on the page. That is the Tetragrammaton. But again, Hebrew scholars, they don't want to write the name of God. You, you know, you're handwriting this thing. And the, the thing that you do is if you write, uh, if you make a spelling mistake, you have to cut out the parchment and put in a new piece of parchment and carry on. It's very expensive to make things. If you spell God's name wrong, the whole thing needs a ceremonial burial. Um, it's a real big deal if you spell God's name wrong in the Bible. You, that's it. The whole thing has to go. You can't, you can't just tip exit out and start again. And so to overcome this, don't write God's name. Instead, write the Lord. That's what they did, and that's what happens in our Bibles. That's why you never see the words, you very rarely see the words Jehovah or Yahweh in a, in a modern Bible. But it is there. It's all over the place. It's just the Lord. And it's this word, I am that I am. That's his name. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, people don't necessarily get caught up on the bread of life part. They're their first reaction is, wait, what? And this is even more apparent later on in the gospel because Jesus says, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees and the scholars and the scribes and he says, uh, they're talking about Abraham and he's saying, oh yeah, but before Abraham was, I am, full stop. And they just pick up stones ready to stone him because they know he's saying he's God. He's claiming to be God. It's outrageous. Very explicit statements of divinity that John is recording here. So right out of the bat, that's important to get to grips with. But what's happening in John's gospel, Jesus is saying, I am, I am, I am, seven times. So there's a completeness about his divinity, but there's a description of what that divinity is like in the next part. So, okay, he's God. He's fully God. But what's he like? And this is, again, re it's, not new to the, it's not new to the New Testament. Not, it's like every single bit of this is dripping in Old Testament. It's like you go through and you realize that John's taking it all and showing you how it's the big picture that points to Jesus. But God, do, this is exactly how God, God has seven names in the Old Testament. You might know some of them, Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah Rapha. These were ways of describing what God was like. So Jehovah Nissi, God is my banner. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And Jehovah Jireh is the first one we come across in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham says, he's the God 
who provides. God who provides. And so here we are in John chapter 6, looking at Jesus' first I am statement. And it starts with a miracle of provision. I haven't got these verses up there, but if you open up your Bibles to John chapter 6 and look, the first 14 verses, you'll see the whole context of I am the bread of life begins with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And so before we read the text, which is there, I want to set the scene a little bit because Jesus is going to say, I'm the bread of life. But before he's the bread of life, he comes to give bread, actual bread, to, uh, to, to 5,000 men and many more women and children. So the context is that he's been teaching out and he's in the foothills of Galilee. So he's out, he's out of the city. He's not in the city. He's gone out into the countryside. There's a small room. People can gather. He can stand up on a nice hill and people can hear him. And they, they've all come and they've been listening to his teaching all day. And then um, he realizes or he knows and they realize oh dear, we've not got any food, we're hungry, and we're miles from home, what are we going to do? And so Jesus um, sees the need that they have, the physical need, sees they're, they're going hungry. They've been probably very hungry all day, but now it's getting to the point where they can't focus anymore on what he's got to say. So a provision needs to be made, and someone's fish sandwich gets uh, repurposed for the task and Jesus prays for it breaks it and hands it out and the disciples that you remember there's the 12 kind of disciples they start to hand out bread and it miraculously provides for all of these people see what we're not supposed to think by Jesus is I am the bread of life statement we're going to get there we're going to get there but before we do we need to know God cares about our needs he does care about our actual needs. In a minute, I'm, I'm going to counter that, you see? So I'm just putting it in, really important. Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, he cares about your needs. He cares about these Israelites who are out there in the fields who, who've come to listen to him, but now they're hungry. And uh, oh, it's maybe a little aside detail, but it's, it's interesting that John records quite purposefully that there's 12 baskets left, 12 baskets. And, and one way to see that is that these disciples, who are the ones handing out the food, actually, I've got a photo of that. Uh, there you go, there he is. don't know which one that is, but here he is handing it out. I think that's from The Chosen, if you've seen it. Um, these disciples who are diligently handing out the food, right, they're not eating, What's, what's in it for them? Each one gets a basket. Everyone else ate their fill too, so baskets may be more than they need. But, but they could have been thinking, oh gosh, you know, handing out the food, but you know, we're the ones really working here. But God, Jesus sees it and he knows and he's there to provide. There's more than enough. You don't need to skim. You don't need to, they didn't, you know, the temptation could have been, oh, you know, we're going to run out quick. We're going to save a fish sandwich for later. You know, that kind of thing. And you don't need to. There's 12 baskets left over. It's more than you need. It's more than enough. Earlier on, Jesus turned water into wine. There's seven signs. That was one of the, the first signs, water into wine. It's more than enough. Way more wine than they needed. And they saved the best to last, the guy says. It, 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 there's no scarcity mindset with God. 
It's over and abundant, supplying for our needs. That's the story, the picture, the, 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 the word about God that he wants us to hear here. But there's a bigger picture, because 12 baskets isn't just for the 12 disciples. In fact, probably more likely what John means is that this is for the 12 tribes of Israel who the disciples represent. In other words, I'm going to feed my people, all of them. And this is a picture back to, um, back to actually what Verity brought from Isaiah, back to the, the Exodus story in the wilderness. Remember, these people are out in the wilderness. They're not in the city. They've gone out to the sticks. They're out on the hillside out in the wilderness, and Jesus comes and feeds them bread, magic bread and fish uh, that multiplies. And, and for everyone listening, everyone there, and we'll see, this is exactly what happens. For everyone there, this is instantly, this is like what Moses did. This is like what happened in the Exodus. We were, we'd been led out of Israel Moses had had that crazy time with the burning bush and he came back and said, God, I am that I am has sent me to liberate us and he's liberated us through the water and out into the desert, but now we're stuck and we have needs. We're, we're hungry and there's no food here. What are we gonna do? God says, I'm Jehovah Jehovah, I'm gonna provide. I'll give you bread. And Jesus is exactly mirroring that situation. So that's the, the context. Jesus comes to give bread. But more importantly, he came to be bread. That's the point of the text today. So can we read uh, from verse 25 to verse 35? So this is the next day. Jesus has crossed the Galilean Sea during a storm, proving that even greater than Moses, he doesn't need to pass through the water. He can just walk straight over it. And he's met his disciples on the other side. Everyone's woken up from their fish sandwich feast, and they go, whoa, where's Jesus? They've deduced he must be over on the other side of the lake. So they've gone to find him the next day. And uh, he didn't hide well enough because they find him. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say, doesn't answer them. When did you come? Truly I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave bread to them from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we've seen that Jesus did come to give bread, but more importantly, or mainly, he comes to be bread. So we asked at the beginning, who is Jesus? That's the question that we're looking at really over this sermon series. Who is he? Who does he say he is in these seven I am statements? Well, it's interesting to look at who the people in the story thought Jesus was. 
So initially in, uh, in verse 14, uh, they say, oh, wow, he's done this amazing bread miracle. He's one like Moses is here. Perhaps the thought of being liberated from the oppressive Roman regime. Again, in the next verse, verse 15, it says that they, they, they thought to grab him and make him king. So that's the reason why Jesus sort of ducked out and escaped, because his time hadn't come yet. So they're, they, they're thinking he could be a new Moses. He could be a king. Or, as Jesus says, and he confronts them and says, you're not interested in signs. You just want your belly full. You just want the comfort of having a full meal, of having a good meal. And with me around, you just think, oh, it's a free bread buffet. And so the question falls on us, and it fell on me quite powerfully this week. And I found myself asking, who do I say Jesus is? Because I think it's really easy to, to be able to say a statement, to know something to know something about God or, or to know something about anyone really and then sometime later down the line reevaluate it and think, well, either one, do I, li- do I live like that's true? Or two, do I still really believe that in that way? Let me unpack that a little bit. Um, oh, a relationship okay, this is maybe a bit of a pessimistic or negative example and maybe unhelpful, but you can have a friendship with a friend and then at the beginning, I'm not talking about you, Becky, this isn't you, okay? Um, I've, got, I've got a friend uh, who you know uh, for a long time. Oh, no, it's be really, I can't do that. <laughs> oh, dear. It's not Becky. You've got a friend for a long time and then later on you realize that they are only friends with you for a reason. They're only because of what you offer them. I, I, I do have a friend who phoned me a lot. And in these phone conversations, I was like an agony aunt. I was the person who dealt with their problems. I was the person who uh, spoke into their uh, like situation and encouraged them, which was fine. I, like, I love them, and I want to be that person for them. But I realized at the beginning of our... And so it's not a criticism at all, but at the beginning of the relationship, I thought we were something else, I guess. And it was only as I got to know them that I realized, really, the relationship was quite one-sided. They weren't there for me in the way I was there for them. When it, when it mattered and I needed help and support, I, I couldn't trust on that relationship. Does that make sense? Where over time, a relationship, you, you realize either that it's changed or that it was never really what it was. And so as I thought about and, and dwelt on these words, I, I realized that there's a way in which Jesus can be a bread giver, but not bread Jesus can be someone who fulfills my needs, like a magic genie lamp that I kind of rub in prayer and hope for the best, but that's really it. Or Jesus can be, and I say Jesus as a catch-all perhaps for, for Christianity or being religious, it can be a badge of superiority. I'm a moral, upright, standing citizen. I go to church on Sundays, don't you know? Is that, is that what it is? Is that what it means to be a Christian? Or um, Jesus can be like a get-out-of-guilt-free card. Um, Some of us, many of us perhaps, I don't know, have a disposition to feel guilty, and 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 we're looking for ways to kind of offset the guilt, looking for ways to not feel sad about things. 
So perhaps Christianity or Jesus become a place where I can feel better about the mistakes I've made. Perhaps as well, Jesus is, is actually more of a, like an artifact or a keepsake. We've got, I, I had, when I was younger, um, a, a, f- a filing cabinet, like, a, like up to here, and I had one drawer in it that was a memory drawer. And over the years, it became all three drawers. I remember at the end, my mum was like, what do these even mean? I couldn't remember. But like, is Jesus just like a memory drawer? Is he the, is he, he's an artifact in there that's supposed to remind you of, 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 of your Christian upbringing or your cultural heritage or a distant grandparent who loved Jesus. What is it that Jesus is for us? And I'm not at all saying that he can't be all of those things. Because of course a relationship can be a link to the past in a family relationship and also be a really healthy and great, wonderful thing. The question is, is Jesus only one of those things? Is that all he is? Because he comes quite clearly to say, I need to be more. I am more. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I don't just come to give bread, although give bread he does. I've come to be bread. I've come to be bread. It's interesting, in, in the book of Revelation, John is writing again to churches and he and he's, he's got, gets this message from Jesus and Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus through John and, and gives this amazing letter. But in it, and, and the church in Ephesus is a church that's doing great things and he's commending them on standing up to the truth and rejecting false teaching. But then he says this, this I have against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first gotten something, you've lost something of the tenderness that you had for, for, for me, for Jesus, for, for the bread of life. You, you've lost something of that hunger for who I am. You've lost something of that desire to be with me. Now it's more about ticking this box or, 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 or looking a certain way or perhaps being perceived as intelligent and thoughtful or well but it's you've lost something and it's not it's not, uh, it's not guilt. Jesus isn't like, oh, you know, tut, 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 tut. It's not. It's, I've got something better to offer than that. I, I'm better than that. Jesus is saying, you don't need, you can have all of those things and more in me. Let's carry on. So remember, Jesus hadn't come to just give bread, but to be bread. Let's look at uh, verses 47 and read on. Uh, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. They got magic bread, just like you did yesterday, but they're all dead now. What good did it do them? This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give you for the life of this world is my flesh. So bread is clearly at this point a metaphor for something more. At this point, Jesus isn't really talking about actual physical bread anymore. And I think they get this and we get this as well. And uh, so, so... so what is this metaphor that Jesus is saying? In what way is Jesus the bread of life? How does this work? What's the picture that he's painting? Well, the simplest way I can think of it 
is that hunger is a need. It's a need that we feel. It's a physical need. I'm hungry. There's something I can do about it. And so in its simplest sense, Jesus is saying that we have a spiritual hunger and that he alone can fulfill this need. That we have something inside us that's not a physical felt hunger, but is more to do with our identity, perhaps, more to do with who we are as spiritual beings. We're not just physical. We're not just matter. There's something more going on inside us. There's something more to humans. There's love. There's beauty. There's music. There's poetry. And we're not, you know, th these things, uh, there's something more transcendent. There's something more like going on in the world that just chemical reactions and electrons firing around. It's not just eat food, feel sated. There's more to the human experience. You have needs and they don't, they're spiritual. What could our spiritual needs be then? I think it's the things that we desire and I think they're quite obvious. They're things like relational security. I want to I be loved, I want to be known and loved for who I am as a person. I want someone to know me deeply and think, yeah, I do like Aled. That's what I want, deep down in my heart. Cheers, babes. I want, but I want to be valued in the different circles that I'm at, okay? Self-esteem, approval, admiration. I want to participate in the human life and feel like my role is valued. I want to go to work and feel like people think, yeah, I can depend on Alad. He, he'll do a good job. He's someone who can... Do you know what I mean? That's not, it's not physical. It's something more. Or even like financial success. There's a material element there, but what are we really asking for with wealth? is about security. It's about knowing I'm not going to get surprised by a crazy bill at the end of the week. It doesn't matter. I've got money to pay for that. I'm not, I can have not just uh, what I need, but I can, I can purchase what I want. I can have aspirations for more and more things. All of these are desires, and each one of us is so different, um, but we all have combinations of that. It could be um, a sense of, of, uh, of our own physicality and wanting to be kind of seen and appreciated for our bodies. That's a, a big one in our culture, to be kind of aesthetically valued. What is it that we're desiring? What are our needs in that sense? What are our spiritual hungers? And again, it's not that these are wrong. They're not wrong, but they can't be ultimate is what Jesus is saying. Yeah, you need to eat your bread. You need, you need to eat the daily bread. You need to kind of, that's, but they, you know, the, your forefathers ate the bread in the desert and they're, they're dead. It's not done them any good. It's not, it, it didn't last. They needed it every day. But, but come to me. And obviously this is where Jesus is switching metaphor, right? And he does this all the time. He's speaking about physical, I've used my prop, I've got my prop, I've got bread. I got a piece of bread for later, don't you worry. He's talking about real bread, but in a heartbeat, and he does this all the time, we've got to be careful. In a heartbeat, he goes from, you're, you're, they ate bread in the desert, but I'm offering something different. It's not that, it's something different, but it's like that, but it's different. Do you get it? Jesus used, does this all the time, and sometimes we're so busy staying with the metaphor that we, we get confused with what he means. He's saying, I've got something more for you on offer, Here's the illustration that I want to use to help us unpack that, and then we'll, we'll come into land. Harry, my son, is 
four years old, he loves to play with toys. We got him quite a few toys. He's got Duplo, he's got Brio. He likes puzzles, he likes coloring in. So there's lots of toys. You, I'm trying to paint a picture so you can imagine my son playing with toys. We come home, we've been out shopping, and we like got one pack of shopping. And we're like, right, Harry, you just go play for a minute and, and we'll be with you. Well, he can't do that, you see, because the problem is the best toy that Harry has is his parents. Wants to play with us, with his toys, but with us. We're his best toy. We might not always be, but right now, we're it. Jesus is claiming and saying, you can have those things, but what you need to see and understand is that the source of all of those good gifts, all of those desires, the source of them is me. And if you enjoy them with me, you enjoy them in their context. If you enjoy them, but ultimately it leads to me. It's like Harry's got this toy and he's like, yeah, I could play with this, but I, it, it's going to lead him to, to his dad. It's going to lead him to play with his dad or mum. You know, it's because it's, one, we bought it for him. So we're the source of his toys, right? We're the source of his enjoyment. So he knows that. We also are really good at playing with the toys. So, so you know, we've got the Jupiter on. Oh, she needs to get to the airport. Quick, pull up a car. Oh, the car comes up. We, we can role play playing to a young child who's still trying to figure it out. We can show him how to do it in a way that's going to work. And in the early days, that was quite, quite intense. You know, I was really making imaginary worlds, and, and he was just watching and seeing. But now he's got it, and we can step back, and he's creating the worlds for himself, and he's playing, able to play a little bit independently, and you take a step back, and then five minutes, and he's like, Daddy, 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 look at this, look at this. You see? And so, you know, I guess the eventual aim is for him to be able to do it on his own, we get there step by step, and that's what God is saying to us is that he's given us these gifts, he's given us these toys, as it were. He's the source, and he knows how to use them properly to get the best out of them. But it's not like a control freak. Um, I, get, no, I do get this when we, Harry wants to build something with his Duplo, and after a certain point, I've got, a, I've got an idea in my brain about what I want to do, and he's not helping me anymore. <laughs> Go and see what your mum's doing. I'll finish this. And, and a masterpiece is created. It's beautiful. And then Alma comes and smashes it down, and I'm the one crying. God isn't doing that, okay? Because for me, in that moment, I'm, I'm, I, I've, my needs, my inner child wants to create. I want to create and do something, but God's happy with the creation he's created. He wants to see you and me thrive and prosper in life. That's his, that's his goal. That's his aim. He wants to see us satisfied. I am the bread. He wants to see us satisfied. And he's saying, stop fooling around making money and popularity and success and sex and identity the main thing about you. If I'm the main thing about you, you get all of that, but you'll actually be satisfied because you know me the source of those things, and you're listening to me, who could tell you how to use them safely and carefully to the best extent, and I'm going to be there with open arms when you mess up and fail to say, you did a great job, you tried your best, I still love you. That's God, the Father, saying, I'm the bread of life. Come to me and eat. How do we do that? Three ways Jesus says. First, he says, believe. 29, trust in Jesus as the one who truly satisfies, so we believe. Simple, 
and yet really hard. We believe. He knows us. He loves us. He gave himself for us, and he knows our weaknesses. He knows our needs. Let's trust him. Let's believe. Second, he says, come, verse 35. Come to him regularly. We've got to come to Jesus and lay our burdens down at his feet. I'm struggling with this. I've made this the thing that I, that I base my life on again. I've let this become the idol in my life. I've let this become the driving force. I've been motivated by this again. I come to Jesus. I lay it at his feet. And finally, he says, eat. Eat. And, and we know what that means now because we practice it every Sunday almost. We, we have communion. We eat the bread. We drink the wine. And of course, that's what Jesus is pointing to. And we, we re, there's these verses. Uh, the Jews are disgusted by Jesus' comment. He says, eat, eat my body, drink my blood. That's, that's, I mean, it's cannibalism in one, you know, ultimately. So it's wrong if you're there. They're tracking. They're still on bread, right? They're still on the bread metaphor. They're thinking, eat bread, eat my body. Gross. They haven't switched metaphor, but, but, but we have. And Jesus is talking, he's pointing forward to the communion meal, the Passover meal that he shares with his disciples. Now, this is important because Passover is the meal celebrating the Exodus. And when the Israelites, they, they, they sacrificed a, a sheep and they poured the blood on the doorposts. And then everyone in the house was safe from the, from the plague of death that came over. If you had the blood on the doorpost, you were fine. If you had the blood on, safe. Without the blood, you weren't. And so th- this, this come and eat, come and drink, it's... It, it's the painting of the blood again. It's, that's the metaphor. That's the picture. And the other picture is it's of, of taking the life of Jesus into yourself. It's as, it's as straightforward as that. Jesus came to give his life for us. And in communion, what we're doing, declaring, symbolizing, is Jesus, I want your life in me. That's what communion is. That's what the bread is. Lord, let me be satisfied in you. It's a prayer and a symbolic action to say that he is our sustenance, he sustains us, he provides, and he is our chief desire. Paul put it in this way in Philippians 3 verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If I could invite the band up. What we're going to do now, um, we're going to take, surprisingly, we're going to take communion. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's at the back of the room. We've got two, two tables. And my encouragement for us this morning, um, if, you're, if you're new to us, what we do, uh, we don't come to the front uh, for communion, we, we, we go to the back, we take it, and we, we often just pray together in small groups. And it's a, it's a beautiful um, picture of community. It's a beautiful picture of the, the priesthood of all believers, as Peter calls it. We don't need a special person at the front to kind of, we, we, we don't need that. So we, we enjoy being able to pray with one another. But of course, it's also a time for you to, uh, to reflect Actually, perhaps something that I've said this morning uh, resonates. It's a time and a moment for you to pray on your own and to pray independently. Perhaps to identify some of those places where we've let the other desires take the driving seat.
We've let other things become the thing. And a moment to say, God, would you be Lord of my life again? Would you be at the center? Would you be truly the bread of life for me? So I, I leave that up to you. And if you want to go join some people in prayer, it's, it's beautiful. Don't, don't be scared. Go, go and do it and pray with someone. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a lovely privilege and picture. Otherwise, um, take time to pray. So if we can all stand, and uh, what I'll do, we'll go and do communion. We'll go take communion. I'll pray for us in a moment. And then uh, as we sort of wrap that up, the band are going to lead us in uh, some songs to close. So can I pray for us? I'm going to, it's going to help me if that's okay. I'm going to use my prop as a symbol. I don't have wine, but that's okay. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you are, you revealed yourself in Jesus to be the bread of life. Lord, we thank you that you are Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Lord, we thank you that you care for our needs. You said, pray this. Give us our bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And you meant it. But Lord, you came and you give us bread. You, fulfill, you meet our needs. But you also, and chiefly and primarily and mainly, you're here to be our chief desire. You're here to be the bread. Lord, we want to find our sustenance in you. Help us. To, to believe, to come and lay our burdens down at your feet, and even now to eat of your body and drink of your blood. We thank you, Lord, for your body broken for us, that we might have life and your blood shed for us, that we might be rescued, forgiven, set free, and called sons and daughters of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.